Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. There is a raging debate in commodities, the same in equities as well. Lori Calvacino with us with RBC. She was superb the last time she was on in framing being in the markets. Lori, you saw the events of last week. Did you change your enthusiasm for equities? You know, it's funny, Tom. I actually asked a lot of people a question. I said, on a scale of 1 to 10, how concerned are you about what happened in the bond market? And generally, most people I talked to said, you know, 3, 4, 5, somewhere in there. And I think that's probably around the range I was in. I would chalk this up to, you know, something that's concerning, something we've got to keep an eye on. You know, similar to what we saw, frankly, with Robinhood and Reddit, um, similar to what we've seen with the variants. But I would say it's not eroding my case for equities yet. I do think we have to keep an eye on it, but still the thesis is intact for did, now. Did you witness rotation or did you witness things coming off the bottom? You witnessed rotation initially. And I'll tell you what I didn't like on Thursday was we suddenly went from you know rotation out of the old secular growers um, into, into the cyclicals. We kind of had a defensive kind of anti-cyclical, uh, classic defensive tone that took hold Thursday. So it was, it was a jumbled week, to be honest. Every Fair. day seemed a little I bit different. That. Well, Lori, last week, uh, John in particular kept asking the question, has the rally in some of the, uh, the consumer stocks, the small caps, has that gone into just recovery and, and catching up with the other stocks? Or are we actually pricing in reflation? And are we actually, do we have any more to go in that trade? Where do you stand on that? You know, it's, it's funny. I, the piece we put out last Tuesday, I think the last line we said we may be embarking just in the middle of this of one big catch up trade and equity markets are not going to pull back until we let that process play out. And I think consumer discretionary is a very different beast in small cap than it is in large cap. In large cap, you have you know, more of the share gainers, kind of the, the longer term secular growers. You have some dirtier stuff down in small cap, things that are a little bit more secularly challenged. There is still deep valuation opportunity there. There is a lot of hair on it, though. Um, so I think that it's, it's a combination of both at this point. But I don't think we should underestimate the catch-up potential because as I talk to investors, a lot of them are concerned that reflation has been fully baked in. I think you can make that generalization to some extent for the broader market, but there are still a lot of bits and pieces like the small-cap financial, small-cap energy, small-cap consumer discretionary, um, where frankly, you know, the, it, it just can't possibly be priced in even on an absolute basis. We're only around long-term averages on those multiples. They're not even elevated. So let's pair these two conversations together, the conversation about benchmark yields as well as the catch-up trade. How much does the catch-up trade hinge on rates remaining around where they are? In other words, how much can rates rise before we end up start, starting to talk about the catch-up trade looking a little different because it's a different backdrop? I think we need rates to keep rising, but we need to do it in a slower, more orderly fashion. I don't think it's the level so much of yields that have spooked investors. It's just the fact that it, it seemed to happen in such a dramatic fashion. I talked to one investor last week who said, you know, this all just feels a little weird. And I think when you've got extended valuations for the market as a whole, when you've got high positioning levels and equities, um, that weirdness, you know, frankly, is probably going to make, you know, some, some eyes really focus on some of the risks perhaps more than they should. But I do think at the end of 
of the day, we're, con we're just continuing to see these little wonky things happen. Um, and that probably means this last bit of catch-up isn't going to be fast and ferocious. It's probably going to be a slower grind with some puts and takes. Fast and ferocious. Tom Keane, here's the stat of the morning. It comes from David Costin and Goldman. Cyclicals with negative earnings and falling sales in 2020 have returned. Drum roll, 25% year-to-date. Let me read that one again, Tom. <clears throat> Cyclicals with negative earnings and falling sales in 2020 have returned 25% yeah. year-to-date. That's been a story. And then Mr. Costin there with a 4,300, I believe, on SPX and way out early on a lot of people. Lori Calvacina, I just looked at Russell 2000 small cap yeah. and its teacher course. The chart is beyond elegant in terms of trend. Describe the trend, the ammo, the power that you see in the Russell 2000 series. Yeah, so it, it's pretty simple. You know, we go back to this catch-up analogy, but if you look at relative valuations between the Russell 2000 and the S&P 500, you have to clean up the data. There's a lot of dirty stuff in the Russell, but if you clean up the data a little bit, we were all the way back down to tech bubble extremes, essentially all-time historic lows on that relative valuation multiple. With the meaningful move that we've seen, you know, just the last few months since the March 23rd lows, small caps are still deeply, deeply undervalued versus large. They're actually closer to that low that they just put in than they are to the long-term average. There is a lot of runway in this trade. Let's talk about participation, Laurie. A theme, I know you've got some details and some data to weigh in on. How broad-based has the participation been in all of this? How well allocated have your clients been to the stories that have performed so well over the last several months? So look, you know, we've seen, it's hard to parse out exactly what it is that's contributed to it, but you know, if you look at the year-to-day performance stats, active managers on the long-only side haven't performed all that well. And that comes off of a year in which they didn't perform all that well either. And this is all looking relative to benchmark, not looking in absolute terms. So they've been lagging behind those major indices. Um, and I want to go back, you know, to something, you know, you guys mentioned earlier about the low-quality trade. We did a study showing whether you're looking at large cap or small cap. On average, low-quality trades last about 25 months coming out of recessions. We're only about halfway through that. Now, that's a big problem for long only active managers because they don't like to own that stuff. When they go out and talk to their clients, they, nobody wants to say, hey, I have this really low quality portfolio, invest with me. <laughs> I mean, it's just not what they do. And to be fair to them, that's not what outperforms over time. But we do have these very powerful melt-ups in those bits and pieces of the market. Um, and, you know, by some, by some accounts, we're probably only halfway through that. So that's the pain trade right now. People keep saying the market's detached from fundamentals. It's detached from the fundamentals that they want to own over the longer term, not necessarily the improving fundamentals we're seeing coming off the bottom. The melt-up would imply increasing participation. So, Laurie, you're telling us, just to put a, a bow on all of this, that even if it sounds really, really consensus, we haven't seen the allocation to this story. A lot of people have still missed out on these gains year to date. I think that's fair. And, you know, I've told some investors there's a consensus to be fair on the sell side. And you guys know me well. I never liked being part of that consensus. But I took a close look at it when I came back. I didn't think that it was wrong. And I saw the room from a valuation opportunity, again, from a thematic perspective. I think the problem is that there's not a unicorn consensus on the sell side and the buy side. The buy side has been fighting this. They're catching up. There's a pain trade in place. And they are scrambling to re reposition. And that's why you're seeing on some of these down days in, in the NASDAQ and the tech stocks, they're having to sell the old fundamental story. They just haven't gotten on board with the new fundamentals yet. Lori, we can't let you go without talking about the GameStop phenomenon and some of the technical oddities, particularly in the small cap space. I was struck by a story that came out over the weekend about Kathy Wood of ARK Investment <clears throat> that talked about how much concentration her bets have. Basically that she owns more than 10% of at least 29 companies that had 
actually accounts for much more than that if you include the holdings of a related investment firm. How much does this create an idiosyncratic risk that's very difficult to model? Well, look, I, I think this is all, you know, very, very challenging, especially from an active manager perspective, because, you know, some of these retail names, people are not necessarily going to want to own some of the ARC names. Um, you know, some of them have been more popular. Some of them have been less popular. We actually took a look at that in our latest hedge fund filing analysis. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's just another sort of thing you can put put in that category of weird oddities in the market that we have this kind of this new hot category of ETFs. Investors don't own all the bits and pieces. They own some. I think investors, frankly, are not quite entirely sure what to make of that phenomenon, but we do get a ton of questions on it. Laurie, always good to see you. Thanks for being with us, especially early. Laurie Cambacina of RBC Capital Markets. Jonathan Gollum joining us now, Credit Suisse Chief, U.S. Nice. Equity Strategist. John, good to see you, sir. Great to catch up. Good to see you. Yields are higher. Yields are up for good reasons. You talked about this in the last couple of weeks. I read through the research with you and the team that this market can do well when yields are higher. I think we need to find a point on that, John, after the price action of Thursday. Your thoughts, please, sir. Well, I mean, there's a few things. First of all, you have to look at the full cost of capital, which not only includes Treasury yields, but also credit spreads. And if you look at high yield spreads since the Pfizer announcement, they are down more than Treasury yields are up. That's the big story. The cost of corporate borrowing over the last four months continues to actually improve, even though Treasury yields are higher, and that's the missed story. John Gallup, I want to go back to the heart of your distinctive call with equity optimism, and that is you believe tech will still participate. You have heard countless people sell, say, sell the big tech, sell the big tech. It's yesterday's story. Give us that distinction. Well, first of all, Tom, we're, we're neutral weight on, on tech because we do think that this is all going to be, first, we think the, the opening is going to be much bigger than people think. Our, our call is, is really around corporate profits, and you want to buy operating leverage. You want companies that jump the most in, a, um, in an improving economy, and tech does okay, but it doesn't do well as banks, which is our favorite group or industrials and materials and energy. So we think that they'll be in the game, but we do not think they'll be leading this. One thing that I was struck by, Jonathan, is that you raised your up, uh, you raised your forecast for the S&P on February 23rd. You had previously raised your forecast on January 7th. It seems to be this moving target. What has surprised you so much in terms of strength that has prompted you to raise your forecasts twice in two months? Yeah, I mean, it, it's the earnings outlook is just is just crazy. I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, in the fourth quarter, we beat the estimates, we the, the the actual results by 17%. Now, typically, a company will beat by 3% or 4%. 17% means that everybody's numbers had to be adjusted because your jumping off point just got a lot higher. That's number one. Number two is if you look at really a few really important groups, higher interest rates, very big positive for financials. Higher oil and copper. Do you know that oil and copper? Um, if things go as expected, that they will be up 50% in 21 versus 20 uh, versus 20. That's enormous for industrials, materials, and energy. And that stuff matters a lot. So those are some of the, the incremental things. But it wasn't that we think PE multiples are going to be the story in the next 12 months. It's all corporate profits. Lisa coming in hot on a Monday morning. Am Lisa, I? 
just what? taking out John Gollum for raising his price target twice I wasn't, in two months. No, I was trying to highlight the moving nature of this economy uh, well, and this yeah. market and how difficult it is to predict. And Jonathan it was been, <laughs> has been very transparent about it. Jonathan, kudos to you for acknowledging what you haven't necessarily been able to pinpoint immediately. The banks have been flying. I think we're still up 15.5% on the S&P year to date on the banks, John. It's been a great, great trade. You need to draw a distinction for us, if you can, at this point already, between who wins the early stage of the recovery and who wins the cycle. And to go back to Tom's point, that secular growth story, the big tech play, is that still the cycle winner for you, John? 100%. I mean, if you have, if you have a five-year or 10-year view, um, buy tech, buy secular growth winners, and just ignore this. This is, this is a nine-month trade um, or something like that in terms of this cyclical leadership. But it's going to be really, really powerful. The question we're getting from people, is it too soon? You know, is it over ready? How much of this is priced into the market? And, and Lisa, I think that the, the key here is that, that we think that the reopening is not even in the market yet. This value trade is still relatively new. And in fact, those cyclical companies are really cheap compared to yeah. the rest of the market because they had lagged for so long. So, uh, yeah, but, yeah. but if, if, to your point, if you have a five-year outlook, you definitely want to be playing those secular winners in tech, in tech areas. John, what portion of cash is looking for a warm spot in the equity markets? Do you look at it as traditional or is it a smaller amount because of these unusual times? You know, Tom, I don't spend a lot of time looking at this and I'll tell you why. Um, the incremental buyer of the market is not a, you know, is not an individual investor as much as we're talking a lot about individual investors. It's a hedge fund that incrementally increases their leverage. And the ability for the market to move on basis points of extra hedge fund leverage is the, is the, uh, the big issue here. And that has, uh, you know, even when you look at all the issues with some of these short squeezes that hedge fund leverage came down, it just popped right back up to where it was. John, just final question then. How much visibility do you have with the prime brokerage team? Do you get a feel for how allocated people are to this? Um, yeah, and we, we do. And I mean, there's, there's, there's just a very small handful of big prime brokers. Credit Suisse is one of the, the top in the world. So we do have a good sense of, of that trading activity. It seems like there's a fair bit of, of additional upside. I'll give you an example. You know, hedge funds are not overweight banks yet. Even though when you talk to guys like me, we're all screaming that banks yeah. are the most attractive group in the marketplace. There's still overweight technology groups, less so in areas like metal and mining and some of these other, you know, heavy, deep cyclicals. So from that perspective, it gives me a lot of encouragement that this trade is nowhere near over. John, great to catch up. You're looking well. Very relaxed. Jonathan Gollub there at Credit Suisse, Chief Thanks. U.S. Equity Strategist. As John mentions on the pandemic, it is good news. Jennifer Nuzzo joins us with Johns Hopkins, and she's particularly good at the epidemiology of all this and the trends of our epidemiology. Dr. Nuzzo, I see a linear trend in deaths. I see a linear trend in hospitalizations. Where is your tip point now on that trend? Where out there is the good point for Jennifer Nuzzo? 
Well, the good point is nobody going to the hospital and nobody dying. And unfortunately, we're not there yet. Um, but we're getting close. I mean, these vaccines are really extraordinary. And we've gotten quite lucky to have now three vaccines that are going to be able to keep people out of the hospital and keep people from dying. So we should see that, um, you know, I, I think in the coming months, I'm quite excited that the limiting step right now is just yeah. getting them into arms. Okay, 4,000 deaths, and then one series I looked at, we're at 2,000 deaths now, and even seeing better statistics, nicely below 2,000. What is the significance of getting to the next 1,000? They have 950 deaths. What does that mean for American society? I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, 950 deaths is too much still, um, but it is extraordinary given where we were, which was one day we you know, surged past 5,000 deaths. So um, it's important to kind of look back and remember how bad it has been, but also recognize that we still have a, a long road ahead of us. And it will start to get slower in terms of re the reduction in deaths, because one of the things we did was cover the groups that are most likely to die, like nursing home patients, which account for a third of deaths. So that quick progress um, is important, um, but that pace won't probably uh, last for all of it. Dr. Nuto, yesterday, Anthony Fauci said that he expects that school-aged children will start to be vaccinated perhaps at the beginning of next year. Can we get to herd immunity before school-aged children can get vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, herd immunity is a really funny thing. It's a, actually a really complicated topic, and it depends on where you live and how much um, natural immunity there is, how much vaccine is being rolled out, and also how much people interact with each other. So I'm actually confident that we'll see a, a you know, a sustained decline in cases um, before we see that happen. We know kids can get the virus, they could spread it, but not quite as well as adults. So I think by fall, things should look a lot better than they are right now. There's also a question, and Anthony Fauci really pushed back on the sort of all clear that seemed to be gaining consensus that if you get a vaccine, you will not be able to spread the virus. He seemed to say, you know, we don't know that for sure. You still could. What do you think about that, given sort of the conflicting data that we've heard? Sure. So um, we've heard some data that actually makes me um, optimistic that we will see a reduction in transmission. I don't think we can say I don't think we've seen that with with a lot um, of the data that we have so far that it will pr completely prevent transmission. But a reduction in transmission is a win as far as I'm concerned. I mean, yeah. really, we've already defagged the virus by taking off the table, um, <clears throat> you know, for the most part, deaths and hospitalizations. And if we can also reduce cases, that would be great. And John, what's so interesting here is the optimism of Dr. Nutso versus a three-week proposed lockdown in Paris or the challenges that we see within the British press. I mean, different the world. gap has never been wider. A different world, particularly on the continent in the Eurozone where they've really struggled to roll out this vaccine. So Jennifer, let's finish there on some good news around the United States. We came into the new year. If there was one worry, I think a lot of people worried about supply. Can we just park that worry now? I look at some of the numbers and it just feels like supply is just not going to be an issue at all in this country. Yeah, I mean, it's still an issue in the sense that, you know, people like me who are in a priority group can't get it, but um, it is getting better and I am um, hopeful for the future. And then we'll have to deal with how do we actually get it into arms? There'll be some bumps there. There'll also be the bumps of people who may not want the vaccine and very much should get it because they, they're vulnerable. So we still have some challenges ahead of us. But overall, I think it's looking a lot better than where we were this time last year. Doctor, the hold up now, do you see it as a logistical one or do you see it as one that comes down to acceptance as we get further down the line? I think we're going to still deal with both for, for quite a while. Um, right now, the predominant uh, challenge is logistical and, um, you know, not enough vaccinators to get into arms and not enough vaccines. The, the vaccines, we're going to have an increasing abundance and then we'll have to think about the vaccinators and then uh, willingness to get it has always been an issue. But as the, the demand is able to be met 
more greatly, we will see more um, more prominently uh, the hesitation issue that we'll also that we need to address. Doctor, we appreciate your ongoing contribution to this program. Thanks for being with us this morning, Jennifer Nutzer there of Johns Hopkins. Thank you. Right on to Washington here. We go to Greg Vellier of AGF looking at the moment that is out there. Greg, I want to go back to Pew Research 12 months ago where they measured the liberals in America and came up with a very liberal-liberal combination of 47% of the Democratic Party. I believe that means a majority of Democrats are not liberals. How does President Biden deal with that with the new animosity? It's a really big story, Tom, and we saw over the weekend the fight on minimum wage. It's, it's not going to be in this $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. Uh, I think it hasn't been vetted. Uh, a lot of moderate Democrats don't like it. This is the first of many big fights that will pit the center against the left. What is the sensitivity, Greg Vellier, of six votes, six districts difference in the House in the push by progressives, by liberals, to bring Mr. Biden to the left? Yeah, there's not a lot of wiggle room, uh, absolutely. And I think in the House and in the Senate, talk of a big new tax hike. I guess Elizabeth Warren is out with something this morning. Uh, it's not going to fly. I mean, the Democrats in the House worry that they could lose the House in 2022 if they go too far to the left. All right, so let's talk about that bill that you're talking about that Senator Warren introduced this morning. She was proposing, along with Representative uh, Jayapal, a 2% annual tax on the net worth of households and trusts between $50 million and $1 billion. What is the likelihood, what is the chance of this actually getting passed into policy? Close to zero. I wouldn't say it's exactly zero, but I'd say it's pretty close. It's a, it's a good argument. She can go out and say we're progressive. We we favor the, the people who don't make that much money. But you don't have the votes for something that radical. Okay, maybe not that radical, but are there the votes to raise taxes in some other capacity later in the year? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think later in the year, as we look at an infrastructure bill, there may be some increase in corporate taxes up from 21% to maybe 25% on the very wealthy. But some huge wealth tax, I think, has very, very little chance. Come on, Greg, let's go there. Do you think we can actually get an infrastructure bill passed anytime soon? Yeah, I do. When people say, uh, Jonathan, that, well, it's $2 trillion or more, it's over 10 years, so it's not like it's all in one year. Uh, I think it's going to be tough, but they have another shot at this budget reconciliation. They get to do it twice this year, once is in the next two weeks on the uh, COVID bill. No, I think they'll have one more chance later in the year. I do think we'll get infrastructure. What will be tough about it, considering that everyone who comes on this program on either side of the aisle says the same thing? They want it, Greg. Yeah, they, they do. I think there's a strong need for, you know, bridges, highways, dams, telecom, all, all of that stuff. And they're willing to spend the money. I, I personally think they're spending too much money. I think $1.9 trillion is too much. I think we're going to overheat the mm -hmm. economy, but it's going to happen. Greg Villiers, you and I are the only ones in the room that remember the phrase blue dog. What is the linkage of moderate Democrats to the moderate senator from West Virginia and then over to moderate Republicans. Is there a new club? Is there a new get-together we don't know about? 
It's a pretty lonely club, Tom. I, there are some people who would agree that you can't spend this kind of money. Obviously, Joe Manchin is the leader of this group from, from West Virginia. But I think there are a lot of Democrats and, and in private who think $1.9 trillion is too much, and there are many, most Republicans think $1.9 trillion is too much. Maybe it goes down to one seven in when we get the final bill in two weeks, but this is going to be a lot of money. I remember when uh, people were talking about how the more radical wings of both the Republican and Democratic parties had more clout, and we certainly have seen that uh, in, in the years uh, in the recent past. Do you think going forward it will be the same? Do you think that we're going to see the Democratic Party skew more heavily toward uh, the left side and the Republican Party skew more heavily toward Trump in a sort of more populist tone? Well, rhetorically they will, and we saw in the last week a real anger on the part of progressives because Biden wouldn't go along with a $50,000 student loan exemption. So there'll be a lot of talk about that. But I, I, let me just make this point quickly. I think that Biden himself will be the key player. He's, he's not a radical. I call him progressive light. Uh, and he's an institutionalist. And I think that he will come down on the side of moderate rather than radical. Greg, before we let you go, I asked this question to Kevin Cirilli, our chief Washington correspondent sure. down in D.C. a little bit earlier, about an hour ago, actually, about whether the divisions within the president's party are getting bigger or whether we're just highlighting the more. What's your take, Greg? You live and breathe it. I think most Republicans in private, if you gave them truth serum, would say they'd be happy to get rid of him. Uh, I mean, he did lose the White House, House and Senate, and people don't forget that. Greg Vanier, AGF Investments Chief, U.S. Policy Strategist on the path forward and the hope, Tom Keane, that we can get an infrastructure plan, a bill passed sometime soon in this country. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.